With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. If you love listening to this show as much as I love hosting it, I think you'll really like the Medal of Honor podcast, produced in partnership with the Medal of Honor Museum. Each episode talks about a genuine American hero and the actions that led to their receiving our nation's highest award for valor. They're just a few minutes each, so if you're looking for a show to fill time between these Warriors episodes, I think you'll love the Medal of Honor podcast. Search for the Medal of Honor podcast wherever you get your shows. Thanks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Quartermaster Second Class and former Navy SEAL, Brett Jones. Jones served on SEAL Team 8, which at the time was the most active SEAL team. After almost being kicked out of the SEALs, Jones decided to leave the teams and join the CIA. There, he deployed to Iraq to protect people in high-threat environments. So, my name is Brett Jones. I got in the Navy, uh, I think it was in 90, end of 93. Uh, my rate when I got in was a personnelman, um, and then I ended up switching it to a quartermaster and uh, because it was easier at the time being a SEAL to take those tests. Uh, and then I got out as a QM2, or quartermaster second class. Well, I remember the first time I heard about Navy SEALs, and it was a conversation that my father had had with my brother. We were living in Egypt at the time. My dad was military, and uh, they were talking about these people that had come to the embassy, and my dad wasn't even allowed to see their faces. And I was like, oh man, my dad's a colonel. Who are these people? And uh, I just listened in on that conversation, and I was just fascinated by these people. Turns out later it was actually... Uh, or I think it was anyways, Richard Marcinko's uh, group that was out there at that time. Um, but it was, uh, it just fascinated me and, and that planted a seed, I guess. Uh, as I got uh, older, my uh, my family ended up finding out that I was gay, I think right around when I was 17 or somewhere in there. And uh, it was not a very uh, accepting atmosphere. And I, I got kicked out of the family, or out of the house anyways. And uh, I remember thinking like how I wanted to be, I didn't want to be an unsuccessful person. For some reason that was really important to me at the time. And I thought that the best route that I could go that could show people that, you know, that this gay thing and 
like it was irrelevant to who I, I mean, it was important obviously that who I was, but it, it, it didn't make a difference in what I wanted to do with my life. And so I joined the Navy and, um, yeah. And I went through SEAL training. I didn't make it my first time, which was devastating to me at the time. And I went to Iceland for two years and there I got a, a refocus, um, largely in part to, uh, some friends of mine that I had had and knew that I was gay that were also, um, in the military and there with me in Iceland and that compassion that they showed me. Cause I, I think at the time I was really, uh, uh, I was conflicted a lot. I still had carried a lot of that resentment and that pain that, you know, my parents, um, and maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally, you know, that coming out like that is very difficult and, uh, it weighs on you emotionally. And, uh, so that experience of not making it through SEAL training and being with those people in Iceland was a very healing experience for me. And I got refocused and, and, uh, I went back to SEAL training and then that time I, I made it. I quit. I totally quit. And it's funny. There was this guy, um, master chief chalker. And uh, so it was the first night of hell week and, um, we were being surf torture, which is where, you know, you lock your arms and you lay in the, the ocean and it's just really cold and you just sit there for what feels like an eternity. And it had been weeks of that leading up to it. And I just wasn't ready. I didn't know going into it, what a seal was supposed to, I, I, yeah, there, I was very naive. And, um, uh, I remember I quit and, and as I was leaving the ranks of this, uh, you know, the, being surf tortured master chief chalker, who was a legend there at the time, was like, let him go, let him go. And then he came out to like tell them to let me go because I was trying to you know quit and my buddies were like no don't quit Brett and uh uh and then him coming out like he face planted right in the in the surf and <laughs> yeah you just had to know his temperament and this person to understand what a big deal that was and uh so yeah yeah I rang the bell I wasn't ready I was not ready like physical pain is a very temporary thing mostly right and i think when you go through something as emotionally hard as like coming out the way that i i did and a lot of people you know i'm not i'm not any one special i mean my coming out was nowhere near as bad as, as a lot of people's uh but it builds something in you right like a, a strength when you make it through a, a situation like that and you process and, and here's the thing like the difference between like emotional and physical um stuff is that the physical stuff is is temporary and even though at times it doesn't seem like it is but the emotional stuff is like something that takes a whole lot more work on your part later down the road to heal from and but you ultimately do if you do that work become a much stronger person and i think that was what iceland did for me was made me a much stronger person emotionally uh and then the physicality of it you know, you just have to be in, in good shape. And that's relatively the easy part of making it through SEAL training. The difficult part of SEAL training is the emotional aspect of it. And it is, a um, as you know, going through some challenging courses that the military, or that the military offers um, requires that uh, emotional strength. And so I was much, well, much better equipped. And I learned also... Um, 
to really focus just on what was happening to me at the moment and and not to focus at the the monstrous mountain that was still left to climb it was just okay i'm cold and i'm and i'm really hungry and i'm i'm tired but this is my moment right now and i know it's going to end it has to it has to end in an hour two hours or at the latest when the sun comes up and the, brings the warmth and all that stuff that comes with that and so that was what i really tried to do is focus on that and then I also had some like mental tricks where I would try to, um, uh, you know, create a story in my mind while all this, you know, <laughs> this cold and whatever stuff was happening around me. I would, um, yeah, I would just try to create a story in my mind um, or say the ABCs backwards or uh, say the ABCs and think of a friend that begins with every single letter, of, you know, just whatever I could do to get my mind off of how miserable out of my own self right like how whatever i could do to get out of that negative pattern that that happens when you're when things are not going your way it was the end of wednesday night and the beginning of thursday and uh when the sun came up thursday morning i was like oh hell yeah you ain't gonna stop me now and uh because there's like they they the way that hell week works is it's at least in my recollection of it, it was it was very physically just super duper hard in the first two three days where it's just cold and they're yelling and it's just it's nonstop. And I remember at Wednesday night there was this uh, evolution that we did that where you just start to kind of zone out and you start to just get into this uh, like automatic mode. And you're so sleep deprived and, you know, you're not yourself. And somehow, like when that sun comes up Thursday morning, I was just like, all right, all right I've got this. And yeah, and everything was just on cruise control from that point till, till Friday afternoon. So I graduate and basically they give you, uh, you can put in what they call a dream sheet, which is you can request which, which teams you want to go to. And back then, um, everyone wanted to go to the teams that were the most chances of you actually going out and doing real world, uh, stuff. And at that time it was SEAL Team 8. And, um, so I chose, obviously my first pick was SEAL Team 8 and oddly enough, I got it. And, uh, which was super exciting. Then I went from, uh, buds cause just technically you're still not a SEAL yet. So I had to go to, uh, Army's Airborne School, where I learned my first lesson about Army schools and that the Army can suck the fun out of anything, even something as fun as jumping out of planes, they make it miserable. And uh, so that was like, I guess, three weeks long or something like that. And then um, then you go to your SEAL team. And then this is, uh, you know, obviously it's changed a little bit since I was in, but uh, you would go to your SEAL team and you do something called SEAL tactical training, which was this advanced form of everything that you've learned up until this point. And uh, for some reason, I remember that being right around six months. I don't think the training was actually, I think the training was right around four months. But by the time I got there, waited for that class to start and, you know, that whole process. And then uh, you have to go through uh, this really big test where basically... Um, they have these, you know, salty old seals that are in this room and you walk into this room and they have maps and, you know, all kinds of guns, completely disassembled radios over in this corner, just everything that, you know, you would need to know and do as a seal. And they quiz you 
on everything. And it's, it's usually, it's a very hard test. I mean, you're, you're plotting stuff on maps while you're answering questions from this guy that are completely have nothing to do with what you're doing right here. And it's a very stressful, uh, and long. I remember mine being in the neighborhood of, I mean, we broke even for, for food and then we came back. So I think it was right around like six hours, four hours, six hours. It was really long and super stressful. And then at the end, they make me stand out in this hall while they all deliberate on whether or not they believe I'm ready to get my trident. And and here's the thing, like, if you don't get that, if you don't pass that, then they can, that could be it. That could, you have made it all the way to this point and you're done. Or they may give you another chance or you get your trident. So it's a very, uh, it's, it's just really stressful. And uh, yeah, I went back into that room and they're like, okay, you're good. And I was like, oh my God. And then the next morning they pinned me in front of the wholesale team and it was really, it was a really awesome experience. And then at that point I'm officially a SEAL. And then they put you in a platoon and the platoon is usually uh, between 14 and 16 guys. And, and then those group of guys are your family for the next year and a half. So you'll spend a year training with them or thereabouts, sometimes a little more. Uh, and it's all about sending you to different schools and then you all training together as a team. And uh, so that's what that whole year is about. And it's intense and it's, it's fast paced and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really intense. And then you deploy for six months and you do, you know, what you, you've been training that whole time to do. So the Navy was really messed up then right it's not that way anymore like now seals have their own rates uh but back then seals didn't and so i would um i, I first was a personnel man which was like a you know a, a secretary really to be honest with you and uh that was what the navy trained me to be but once i got to the seal teams i was like i can't i ha I, there's no way I, I can study for this and be have it applied to in like it was just a huge inconvenience to study for something that i had nothing you know to do with and so i thought the easiest one for me to do would be a quartermaster since a lot of it is just navigating and basically that's what you do a lot of as a seal so i went to quartermaster a school um when i was a seal and also at that time when you went to take your your test um, they would give you uh, like some points or a break or something like that because you were a SEAL and because they knew that you weren't going to um, be able to study or, or you didn't work in your field. So they cut you a little bit of slash. <laughs> Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his 
transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Ah, gosh, my first deployment um, was, I was on, I did a, what they call a strike platoon, and I was, uh, my my team was uh, put on the the Eisenhower battle group, and so we would, we would go and do stuff from the Eisenhower, and then we would fly back and you know recoup and regroup and get all of our stuff cleaned up and ready, and then we would deploy again from that carrier to wherever to do whatever for how long, and then you know it was just six months of six months of that. Although like we didn't spend a whole lot of time on the carrier. I mean, I think the longest we spent on that thing was maybe two weeks, and um, yeah, but then you're off doing something else and which was really nice because i didn't i didn't like being on i didn't like spending much time on those ships this whole time like i'm going through seal training and all this stuff leading up to this i'm thinking once i get there then like i'm you know i'm a movie star man i don't have to do anything i can just i just go be a cool guy and do cool guy stuff or whatever and that's not (laughs) i don't know where that idea came from but um when I got there, it was it, the competition. It, it gets it, it gets even more intense. The uh, the op level gets even more intense. The um, yeah, it was it, that was what was shocking to me was it wasn't this um, thing that I this Hollywood thing that I guess I had in my head, and it was actual like really hard work to not only stay in the SEAL teams but to be a contributing you know, a good contributor to the team. So that was what was surprising to me. Pre 9-11 was, um, it was a lot of uh, recon stuff um, and a lot of JSETs, a lot of training. It wasn't like as action-y as, uh, you know, when I went to go work for the, the CIA. But there were, I mean, we did do some pretty cool stuff. Um, there was uh, some... You know, there was the whole um, Iraq and Iran, you know, that situation was happening. And so what was what was going on was uh, they were smuggling oil out of Iraq and then selling it. It was funding the, you know, that that movement out there. And so we were taking down those. They were called maritime interdiction operations. And so we were taking down those uh, ships. Um, which, uh, was, you know, that was real exciting. That was actually, I feel like a really great introduction into, um, the seal experience. There was this space of, of water where these boats had to go into international waters for brief. It was like less than maybe 10 nautical miles. It has been a while, so I can't remember exactly. And then it would bounce right into Iranian water. So it was this very difficult very fast paced, like get in there, take control of the ship and take it, you know, further out into international waters where it was turning over to NATO and, and 
then that oil gets i don't know how whatever native does with all that stuff is is their thing um so uh yeah it was intense and i remember one op in particular where we took down the boat and they tried to scuttle the ship which you know dump all that oil out into the the ocean they wanted to make a big you know international incident out of it and and so our team we had to work fast and quick and it was amazing um what some of the guys on our team were able to do to take control of that ship and steer it even without the hydraulic systems and the i mean they really tried to to make that ship impossible to steer and we actually started floating very well i don't know like what i can say about that op from that point on but it got really crazy as far as you know borders go and getting that boat into uh nato hands it so so if there was fast road usually what we would do is uh we would have a team that would fast rope onto the superstructure of the the ship and then we would have a team come up on a rib or on a swick boat and uh they would come on that way so one team would take control of the the bridge and then the other team would go in and take control of the the half steering and uh because that's another place where you can control the ship just like you can the bridge and then also and then they would you know break off into teams where they would go and round up the crew and and take control of the crew and and put them in a safe space where they couldn't try and do things like dump you know millions of gallons of oil into the to the ocean i remember how we trained and and uh, i remember we had like one of the this gnarly crash because we ended up using um at the time it was just whatever asset we could use at the time and i don't know how this happened but during because this was way above my head but we ended up with one of the heel and one it's the dual road that's the 47 right r46 yeah thank you so we ended up with one of those and it was the one that would bring the mail to the different ships and there were it was the only one we had available at the time and so yeah, and that was turned out to be just an awful, awful mistake because, you know, when you're flying a, a helicopter to get on a ship, especially a ship that's trying to ditch you, it's you have to stay relative with that ship as it's doing all these cuts and corners and, and stuff like that. It's very, I'm not a pilot. You're, you would know better than I would, but uh, it was uh, approved to be a very challenging thing for somebody that isn't used to that and on um, one of the just getting ready to do those uh maritime indiction operations that uh the helicopter clipped the afn antenna on a usns ship that we were practicing on and and then it just ended up crashing into the superstructure of the ship and all the blades flew off and, and we had at the time i want to say we had two platoons on that that practicing for that one um, but it was weird. Like nobody got hurt. And, and like, if you would have seen how high that superstructure was and where it hit and then slid down and, you know, you would think, man, somebody, if not multiple people are going to be dead. And, uh, yeah. And nobody, and I, I happened to be the, the first person to fast rope off of that one, uh, because I was a breacher and, uh, under the superstructure and then somebody else fast rope behind me and then it clipped the thing and then it came down and yeah so right after 9-11 happens i deployed with seal team eight in like two weeks it was so fast but 
what was crazy is we were already scheduled to deploy at that time anyways. And uh, so, yeah, we had already had everything packed and we it was crazy. It was just boom. And uh, we were out the door. And um, when I came back from that deployment, uh, everyone that was in that deployment with me went to SEAL Team 10 to commission SEAL Team 10, uh, which is basically, you know, um, creating a whole new SEAL team. And, uh, and, and that's basically what happened is we went from uh, being SEAL Team 8 one day to the minute we got back from that deployment to being SEAL Team 10. And um, I didn't get to do a whole lot of work with SEAL Team 10. In fact, uh, it was just a few months that I was there before they found out about, um, you know, me being gay. We did do stuff, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't, we weren't where we wanted to be. Let me put it that way. So, so here's the, the basis of what happened. So the Navy finds out that I'm gay. Uh, I go through that whole investigation process and basically everything gets all my clearances everything get pulled and i even had to be escorted on my team it was really it was a really just an overall embarrassing and the way that, that i was it is just awful experience uh i eventually get cleared and i remember my sil team commander or the ceo of our sil team took me into his office because he was a very big supporter of mine which i'll forever be grateful for him and and our master chief um and and they brought me in the office and they're like hey man we're all good it's it's done um apparently uh, you know a call from a senator makes all the difference in the world and um and what do you want to do do you want to because we can throw you in a platoon right now get you out the door and this was in 2003 so you have to kind of think about the the time frame right um the repeal of don't ask don't tell was still you know years and years away and to me at the time, it looked like it was never going to have that. That was never going to be a thing. And there were people that knew that I was gay now, like it wasn't a secret. And there was high ranking people that knew that I was gay. And I just honestly felt that it would be a matter of time before, you know, anything, something, I, I don't know. It was just as difficult as my life had been in the Navy up until that point with them, you know, the, the whole investigation of me being gay and, and all that, I couldn't imagine what it would be like for another, you know, who knows, you know, another 10 years until I retired. So I decided to get out. And I feel even to this day, that was the best thing that I could have done at that time, given, you know, the time frame and, and everything going on. And the CIA recruited me like almost instantly. I had been, I got out and I was actually technically still in the Navy because I was on my terminal leave. I had two months of terminal leave and I was working at some, I've always been really uh, fascinated with the movie making process and, and filmmaking and all that. And so I went to go work for this small little production company and I got recruited by the agency. They're like, hey, um, we have this program. It's called, uh, well, they're, they called them GRS agents back then. And it was basically a, a global response, part of their global response staff. And so I went and I did it. I went through their, their application process. It was very fast and furious. I mean, I, from the minute I said yes, I was in a training program uh, just a couple weeks later. And then right after that, I was on a plane to Iraq. And I was still 
crazy enough, I was still in the Navy serving in Iraq for the agency. Um, and I was one of the first guys to get my clearance. I remember they did these clearances really quick back then because they just needed people. And uh, I remember I was like brutally honest. I was like, look, man, I'm gay. I've got, I'm in a relationship with, I own a house where, the, you know, this and that and, and with this guy doing the background investigation. And I thought for sure that I would never get my clearance. But I mean, two days after landing in Iraq, they came in and said, hey, your top secret clearance came through. It's like, damn, that's quick. It's basically protecting people uh, in high threat environments is is really what the baseline of it is. Now it gets complicated on on different mission levels and 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 all that sort of stuff. But basically, it's going in, working with um, you know people within the agency who are trained to to meet with and talk with shady people and our job was to go with them or bring them or to pick up for them uh shady people and that was uh that was really it was just protecting it was it was all about keeping people alive was what that that job was which was very rewarding actually unfortunately there aren't any examples that i can share but i can tell you that the difference between um, sort of working as a Navy SEAL and then going and working for the, the agency was, um, so at a SEAL team, you have your operators, right? You have your, um, your Navy SEALs, and then you have the support people that, you know, help, you know, with the, the administrative side and the, the motors, just all, you know, all this whole support staff behind these SEALs. And, um, the difference being once you, when I was with the agency is that support, was much bigger and and it wasn't felt as like oh we were we were the 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 ones that it was more of a team it felt very much the team felt much bigger and much wider and um and you know the agency you know we would fight for a lot of little things in the SEAL teams believe it or not like things like new weapons or new sight systems and you know things like that whereas at the agency it honestly at times felt like all I had to do was ask for something and I would get it, no matter how, you know, how much it might have cost. <laughs> oh, the guy that drove in and blew himself up. Yes, I, I absolutely, I was in during that. In fact, one of the, the guys that was killed, the one of the GRS guys, um, was a really good friend of mine. Um, yeah, uh, we went through what we call uh, TDC together. It, uh, it was this, It's this very difficult training that you had to do every year at the time to stay in that program and um yeah and it's really sad i, I saw a movie like it was in he was depicted in some movie i can't remember or maybe 13 no um god what 13 uh, i remember watching that and just feeling that the same damn sinky feeling that where you know like it feels like your heart disappears out of your chest and uh and then there's like that void or whatever when that day golly that was off and i remember a guy that i worked with who they were actually they i believe because he was a cop in atlanta or somewhere around atlanta and i remember um they had this the, him and this other cop that were on the program had worked together um so they they worked they were in the military and then they got out were cops and then and then went and did this whole thing with the agency and they were, had been cops together. I remember his reaction 
uh, because we were roommates at the time when we heard and, and fuck man, I don't know how to like describe it to you other than it was literally like having something in you just disappear instantly. And then, you know, the emotions and, and how you deal with that. Uh, it was awful. It was an awful fucking day. I saw the person get smoked. That was sort of the, the head one after that. And, you know, you think something like that would bring you sort of peace and, you know, ending or whatever to it. And it didn't. So I think fortunately at the time that that happened, I was around, I, I was deployed when it happened. So I was around, you know, people that we could talk about it with. But even then, there's this whole bravado that you have to try to maintain that you're strong and, and this and that. And um, and I remember I was in a relationship at the time, and that person was what we call read in, right? Which means that I could talk to them about things like that. I don't know. Like, it's, it's a loss, man. It's like, you know, it's like losing a brother, right? Like, it, you can talk. I mean, sure, yes, talking does help. I don't mean to discourage talking. Um, but a part of that is just time. It's just time and patience. And and um, and try, I you know, even today, I get choked up thinking about it because it still, even today, hurts a little bit, for sure. I miss them. And uh, I try to, in those moments, focus on the things that I really enjoyed about them and I want to say the the most, you know, beautiful examples of leadership that I have seen are always people that, one, aren't afraid or don't. It's not even a matter of afraid or not, but do the same thing. And you know will do the same thing that you're being asked to do. But also the ones that have compassion and love, really. I mean, I don't want to make it sound corny or anything like that, but it's, um, there is a whole lot of, leadership lessons to be learned in compassion and i think those are the those examples that i had seen and you know throughout my whole career and and even now are the ones that i really try to uh to emulate and and to be like is yeah is the those who were were fierce but also compassionate That was Quartermaster Second Class Brett Jones. To hear more from him, check out his book, Pride, the story of the first openly gay Navy SEAL. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rule Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.